listening to High Temperature Times, a podcast constantly searching to find the most obscure ways to connect holidays with the refractory industry. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I've awoken from my daytime slumber in an uncomfortable wooden coffin to play the role of application specialist for Harbison Walker International. That's right, it's that time of the year again, one where we're driving through the countryside to see the pretty and colorful leaves while sipping on pumpkin spice lattes and preparing to gorge ourselves on our children's candy. Halloween. But Halloween isn't all about playful costumes and bobbing for apples. It's also a dark and spooky time with demons and scary movies and all things that go bump in the night. And it's in this creepy time that I finally have the opportunity to talk to you about the creepiest aspect of the refractory industry. Creep. To someone outside the materials industry, creep is just another thing to describe that person staring at you while in line at the coffee shop. But to the rest of us, it's a unique phenomenon occurring to materials at extremely high temperatures over long periods of time. While it's not commonly seen in the refractory industry, there are certain applications where the unique conditions rule out quicker and more destructive attack mechanisms, while still relying on dense refractory products prone to long-term creep attack. But first, I guess we should pedal back and take a peek at a definition. Creep and compression is the isothermal deformation of a compressive stressed product as a function of time. Breaking that down, we're taking a refractory product under stress, either tensile or compressive stress, but most commonly compressive stress, holding it at a high temperature for a long period of time and having that refractory product deform. I've got a great little story that I think helps create a little visual. Maybe it's not the most apt story, but it's a fun one. A few hundred years ago, people all across Europe were building these magnificent structures to honor God. Even more awesome than the spooky gargoyles that watch you from above, they had these gorgeous colored windows made of hundreds of pieces of glass held together with metal strips so they stand the test of time. Stained glass windows. Flash forward in the modern era, people looked at these windows and noticed that they were thicker on the bottom than they were on the top. Aha, well, glass is an amorphous material with no crystalline order. Therefore, it must be an extremely viscous liquid material, and this year proves it. Over hundreds of years, the material flowed to make it thicker on bottom than on top. Well, they were entirely wrong, since glassmakers simply didn't get the glass to be a uniform thickness across the sheet. And when you're standing a triangle up, you tend to put the thicker side on the bottom and the thinner side on top. But the idea of a solid material slowly deforming due to processes like gravity over a long period of time, as if it were a liquid, is a pretty apt visual of creep. Except you need to add a couple thousand degrees Fahrenheit to make that happen. So does that mean that creep is the formation of a liquidus phase that causes the material to sag? Generally, no. The material remains solid the entire time. But it does get a little hairier in the refractory industry. More on that later. If you're dealing with a high-purity material like tabular alumina fused together to make uniform grain sizes with few impurities, creep is a lot more straightforward. Let's zoom in and have a microscopic look at a ceramic. In the most pure ceramics, like 99.8% alumina, you have these powder particles made of nothing but 40% aluminum atoms and 60% oxygen atoms. These powder particles are squished against other powder particles, forming a solid mass, kind of like the powder makeup container that you use to dress up like a clown for Halloween. Except in ceramics, that powder has then been fired to a high temperature to make it more or less like a tile and less like a cake of powder. After seeing that high temperature, the powder particles become a hard and strong grain, and the area between the powder particles, now grains, are called grain boundaries. As crazy as it is to believe slash envision, Atoms in the grains can move around, and that happens especially easily at high temperatures. Atoms from smaller grains move towards bigger grains, defects and impurities move around really easily, and it's all this movement that leads to creep. So atoms from areas of high stress move towards areas of low stress. To do so, the atoms can move through the grain, which is less common since it requires more energy. That's called Nabarro herring creep. Or they can move along grain boundaries, which is easier since there's a lot of stepping stones where the two grains meet. 
That's called cobalt creep. With these two creep mechanisms, the grains will slide along each other and squish in the directions of their stress. That means that if you were to look at those grains under a microscope after creep had occurred, what used to be a roundish grain would now look like a smashed pumpkin. I mentioned that refractories are a little more complicated since they're generally less pure. Uh, earlier, we were talking about 99.8% alumina ceramics, right? One crystal composition, one type of grain, very little impurities, a really crystal clear case. But that's like the king size candy bar house in a neighborhood full of Tootsie Rolls and Dum Dums. We don't typically run creep tests on a great many refractory brands, a test that we'll talk about in a bit. That's because in a lot of brands, the ooey-gooey behavior that might be mistaken for creep, it's just a liquidous reactionary phase that are occurring at temperatures close to or above the material's use limit. Impurities, like lime and monolithics, can act as a flux at high temperatures and create some liquidous action between the grains that allow the grain boundaries to slide just like they might with creep, but the fact that you don't see that characteristic squishing of the grains means that it's not due to Nabarro herring or cobalt creep mechanisms, but due to the liquidous phases from reactive impurities. To get an idea of what I'm talking about, look at a phase diagram between alumina, silica, and lime. There are a ton of reactions that can occur between those materials above 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. Those reactions allow for grain boundary sliding and atomic movement and cause something like a lintel in an aluminum furnace to sag without creep ever being a factor. Brands that are considered creep resistant, like Corundal XD, also have some impurities, but they're not reactive and we limit them either by trapping them in grains or by removing them altogether to prevent creep from occurring too quickly. So there are tricks and treats we can use to limit creep even when we're not talking about the purest of pure materials. Now let's get into the topic of how to test creep resistance. So change out of your current costume and toss on a lab coat and safety glasses. Let's play scientist. There are two major ways of testing creep, the old way and the new way. The old way is cheap and cheerful, down and dirty, but can be akin to a B-movie horror flick. We call it the hot load test, or C16-03. Take a refractor you want to test, a 9x4.5x3 straight, and stand it up on end in the furnace. Put 25 PSI of load on it, typically by placing additional bricks on top, and heat it to a desired temperature, usually dependent on the grade of the refractory. When you hit your desired temperature, hold it for something like 50 or 100 hours and cool it down to measure how much the brick squatted. If a 9-inch tall brick is now 8.75 inches, it had a 2.7% subsidence, and that's your creep. While modern tests that I will discuss later do the same thing with a little more refinement, the main drawback of this test is the lack of vision during the test itself. We know the size before, and we know the size afterwards, but that forces us to assume that the rate of creep is linear during that time. Is it? Well, you would never know the answer unless you use our next test. Well, actually our next two tests, which help take the age of hot load testing from caveman costumes to robot costumes. These are Creep and RUL, or DIN 993-9 and DIN 51064. These are very similar tests in how they're done, but they tell us two very different things. The process is quite similar. Creep tests take a small 2-inch diameter and 2-inch tall sample with a 3-8 inch hole in the center and put it in a furnace under a 28.4 PSI load. An electric transducer measures the change in the sample size as the material is being heated and its deformation at temperatures under load. That's actually where it's special. The transducer gives us live data, preventing us from wandering aimlessly in the dark during the testing process. This subsidence, or growth in this case occurring during heat up, is indicative of the material's coefficient of thermal expansion but it can also show interesting behaviors with mineralogical changes like with AZS-based materials. The graphical data coming out of this portion of the test would be a simple change in dimension as a function of temperature, much like a thermal expansion curve, but what's really cool about this test is the change in axes once the material reaches its final temperature. Holding it at temperature, much like a hot load test for 50 or even 100 hours, 
The data on the graph changes to show dimension as a function of time, not temperature. As the refractory remains in the furnace over this time, it will begin to creep. But here's the kicker. It doesn't creep linearly. Refractories, well, most ceramics actually, have three stages of creep. Primary creep occurs within something like the first 15 hours of testing. This is a fairly accelerated creep associated with impurities and mineralogical phenomena. Then, as things settle out, they enter secondary creep, which lasts an incredibly long time at low temperatures, or a much shorter time at excessive temperatures. This is standard creep behavior that you're most likely to expect in your kiln. Then, towards the end of life, you'll begin to see tertiary creep, which is failure creep. Think of this as the straw that broke the camel's back. Your pillowcase of candy got too full and the corners are starting to tear. This is another accelerated creep where compression forces overtake the material and failure occurs. The, the creep test doesn't go long enough to see tertiary creep in most cases, but being able to identify primary and secondary creep is critical. For one, knowing your secondary creep rate can go a small way into helping predict refractory lifetime. So it's important to look at the 20 to 50 hour percent subsidence, as that will be the rate representing creep over extended periods of time. And, you know, because we expect our refractories to last longer than 50 to 100 hours. Another important reason to look past the 0 to 20 hour period is because some refractories see very little creep when exposed to temperatures where creep begins. These products are either very resistant to creep overall, which will be evident in the 20 to 50 hour period anyways, or they're showing a secondary expansive phase change, like the formation of mollite and aluminosilicas, uh, spinel and magalumina brick, or forsterite and magsilica brick. Once those phases are done forming, the 20 to 50 hour hold shows more realistic creep rates. Those important details just wouldn't show up in the hot load test. One fun fact before I get into the RUL test is that materials creep faster in reducing atmospheres. A 60% alumina brick like Eufaula might see something like a 1.5% subsidence under standard atmospheric conditions, but see over 3% subsidence in a reducing atmosphere. I welcome your thoughts as to why this is the case. I haven't exactly uh, cracked open any textbooks on the subject, but if I were to posit a theory, I would say that partial reduction of materials like iron oxides or what have you would create vacancies that allow atoms to move from areas of high stress to areas of low stress faster, just at those stepping stones and grain boundaries like I mentioned earlier. Anyways, the refractoryus under load test does not give you a percent subsidence after a period of time, rather a temperature at which a certain amount of subsidence occurs. Same sample prep, same setup, you take the sample and you heat it until growth due to reversible thermal expansion tapers off. This means that the material is beginning to subside at the same rate it's expanding due to temperature. This is your T sub max. Then, continuing to increase temperature, you note where subsidence is 0.6% based on the dimensions of T sub max. That's called T sub A. In theory, you can continue going further, all the way to T sub B where you get 20% subsidence or rupture, but most people just stop and record uh, T sub A. If you were to go all the way to T sub B, you will be looking at that tertiary creep I mentioned earlier. But let's pause and think about it. RUL might be looking at creep behavior, or even as far as creep-related failure, but it's eliminating a crucial variable, time. How is that any better than the hot load test, eliminating critical data and all that? Well, the name is refractoriness under load. So we're trying to get a sense of refractoriness in a system where no other destructive mechanisms are present. RUL presents the temperature at which the material deforms due to creep at an accelerated rate due to the loads applied and the temperatures it's exposed to. Kayla, for example, shows an RUL of 2766 Fahrenheit. So it subsides 0.6% more than T sub max at 2766 Fahrenheit. That means that if there are no other destructive mechanisms present that might cause reactions or mechanical abuse to lower that number, a Kayla wall with 28.4 PSI of pressure on it would begin to rapidly creep at 2766 Fahrenheit, and as such, we would recommend not placing that brand of brick in operation at or around those temperatures. 
but 28.4 PSI is no light number. Let's do some math. A 9x4.5x3 straight might see its 9x4.5-inch side exposed to the weight of all the bricks above it. That's 40.5 square inches of refractory. A Kayla brick comes in at a whopping 10.6 pounds per 9x4.5x3-inch straight, so 28.4 PSI means just under 109 bricks of force on that 9x4.5-inch side. That's a 27-foot wall of Kayla to generate 28.4 PSI of force on a single brick. I would most certainly be squished if I had that much weight on me, and it would be some real B-movie gore, too. And when engineering, we like to put in some anchor brick or maybe some brick shelf to help diminish that weight on units with walls that high, so the brick wouldn't actually see that much force, ever. Still, do with that data what you will, it's a pretty neat test. Anyways, I think I've clearly illustrated the challenge of connecting real-life numbers with engineering standardized testing. Maybe the best thing to do is look at some examples, and I'm pretty sure you're tired of hearing me talk. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Director of Application Technology, Bryn Snow, to talk with us about glass tank crowns. Hey, Bryn. Hello. So what is a glass tank crown, and why is it such an important part of the glass production process? A glass tank crown is essentially the roof of a glass melter. We call it a crown because of the type of brick construction required to span the melter from wall to wall. The brick is held in compression by the skew blocks and arched from wall to wall over the entire length of the melter. How big is this? The crown is the entire length and width of the melter, so that can vary. Uh, the width can be anywhere from 15 feet to 40 feet wide. That's and then the big. length can be, you know, you're talking like a length of a basketball court or in the case of float glass, it's a football field. Wow. So what's happening in these glass tank crowns that we need to design against with regards to refractory selection? Because of the type of construction and the fact that the application sees a high level of alkali attack, along with very high temperatures, material selection is quite important. When choosing a material, it not only needs to be able to withstand the alkali attack, but also be incredibly resistant to creep, which is the topic at hand today. So, that, I mean, that explains a lot. So just like I said earlier, creep is what's left when you've removed all other destructive mechanisms. And that's what you, exactly what you're doing here, getting rid of the alkali and what's left is, is defending against that creep. So... I saw in my notes that, that glass, glass crowns are more likely to use a malite-based product like Gem or Nike than they already use a high alumina product like Corundal. And I guess that's because of the resistance to alkali attack. So with that combination of alkali resistance and creep resistance, how long do these crowns typically last? Malite is a great option for crowns, and we do see a lot of them in regenerator crowns and in e-glass melters. But the most prevalent material in soda lime silica melters is still type A silica. This is kind of an older technology, uh, has been around a long time, but it is still a great option for crowns. Uh, this product not only hits the categories of alkali resistance and creep, but it also has the added benefit of being more economical than that of the molate or even some fuse cast products on the market. Depending on the operation, melter crowns are typically lasting as long as 20 plus years in the float glass industry. And the container glass is right on its heels coming in between 15 and 20 years. 
So with a life expectancy of a couple decades, making sure you have the right material is a very critical decision. Yeah, you can kind of see the time scale we're talking about when we're talking about creep. So knowing that alumina-based materials are generally more refractory than silica-based materials, to what scale is type A silica considered creep-resistant? So type A silica, uh, the classification type A has to do with the amount of alkali plus the amount of alumina that is present in the refractory. And as a result of having very low levels, which does classify it as type A, it has very good refractoriness under load. So that really goes back to what I was saying earlier about impurities allowing those atoms to move through the material faster, accelerating creep. So by reducing those impurities, you're reducing the rate of creep. Absolutely. It's really cool. Thank you, Bryn. And since nobody likes to trick-or-treat alone, we'll give one more crack at it by inviting application leader Stephen Carnes to talk about the importance of creep resistance in sulfur recovery units. hey Hey, how you doing? So what is an SRU? And I mean, what, what's, what's being done here? <laughs> so in, uh, in an SRU thermal reactor, um, what we're do- doing is uh, decomposing uh, or, or combusting uh, H2S acid gases, uh, partially combusting those into SO2 and leaving some of that H2S around to use later on downstream to turn it into elemental sulfur. So essentially what we're doing here is we're, the whole process is to try to capture the sulfur from a refinery and uh, get it out of the products that they're, that they're producing there, right? So I know SRUs do have the challenge with keeping a hot shell to prevent acid condensation, but there's nothing else like thermal shock or chemical attack going on here, just creep? Yep, creep is the, the big nasty bully in, in the world there. There, there are some other other issues but the main uh, wear mechanism the the main uh, scary thing to think about there is uh, is the creep when we were talking with Bryn with glass crowns Bryn mentioned that the time frame for creep in these glass crowns is you know up to two decades are we talking <laughs> about that same time frame here with SRUs maybe not that long but yeah it is pretty long it's not like in other industries where you know like in a in the steel industry maybe you turn around a ladle every couple of days or even faster than that right but yeah if if uh, the if the lining was installed correctly and if it's operated correctly it could uh, it could last up to 10 to 15 years well I, I guess another factor since it is a time temperature dependence are the temperatures a lot hotter yeah. So obviously, the hotter you go, the more the in, the creep is influenced, right? You get you get faster creep with hotter temperatures. So where exactly does the creep occur in these vessels? What would it what would it look like if you were to walk into one of these vessels and see it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so these vessels are are uh, horizontal cylinders, and um, what you'd see is uh, some cracks opening up between the bricks uh in in the overhead 12 o'clock position um just because as as things slowly squish and deform that that ceiling tends to flatten out and come in so that that cylinder turns flat and all of those brick joints start to open up a little bit then hmm. you know you've got you're starting to get some creep deformation there and obviously those big cracks allow hot gases 
to get past the refractory. So Corundal XD is kind of the industry leader here in creep resistance. What's so special about this brick? So our Corundal XD is uh, a 90%, we call it molite bonded, uh, because it uses uh, um, tabular infused alumina as the aggregate, which is 99% alumina. And that that, uh, extra 10% is almost entirely silica. And that all comes in in the matrix phase. And and, uh, we create molite in the matrix, and that's what bonds everything together. And uh, what really gets us the excellent creep resistance there is that that extra 10% of the generally 90% brick, it's almost entirely silica, and there's very few other impurities. Uh, there's there's very little um, soda or iron or titanium or any of those kind of things. And obviously, the more other stuff you get in there, the uh, the more potential you have for, for any kind of creep. It's really cool. Mollite is in itself a very stable, thermally and chemically stable material, but it also sort of traps a lot of those impurities. So I, earlier on, I was talking about the hmm. cobalt creep and Navarro herring creep with cobalt creep being impurities moving along the grain boundaries. Well, with mollite filling your grain boundaries, essentially, you're stopping anything from moving because it's trapping all those impurities that would otherwise be mobile. Yeah, that's that's a good point to make. Yeah, that's really cool. All right, so a little bit of spooky, a little bit of fun, perfectly balanced, like all things should be. That's all we have for this year's Halloween special on the creepiest of things in the refractory industry. Thank you, Bryn and Steven, for bringing a little bit of the real world into this uber-scientific topic of creep. If you would like to learn more about creep resistance or any of the other products mentioned in the episode, reach out to us at tactical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. It'll only cost you all your KitKats. If you'd like to hear more fun-sized refractory jaunts, be sure to like and subscribe. The question I have for you is, trick or treat?